This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. It was fall 2009, and just a few months into his presidency, Barack Obama asked the military and his cabinet for a review of the war in Afghanistan. Seven years into the war, Obama wanted to step back and get a slate of options for what to do next. What was our objective? What was achievable? What resources were needed? Military, diplomatic, assistance. No matter where the discussion went, the military came back with basically one option. More troops. Sources tell CBS News that General Stanley McChrystal's strong recommendation to the president is for 40,000 additional troops for Afghanistan on top of the 65,000 already there. In fact, McChrystal said, the only choice was between putting in all of those troops or almost certain failure. Key advisors quickly agreed. Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. When Obama tried to take a second, to assess whether a troop surge of that size really made sense, he got hammered by Republicans in the media as indecisive, dithering. I remember sitting through nine tense situation room meetings, two to three hours each, as the hawks at the table made the same arguments for an open-ended surge over and over. There was only one person there who thought it was a bad idea and said so over and over. It was Joe Biden. Among those at today's War Council meeting, sources say Vice President Joe Biden opposes his request. Biden would take in the general's PowerPoint presentations. Then he'd bluntly tell them that the American people were sick of war, that we could never send enough troops to achieve what the generals were arguing for. That Afghan President Hamid Karzai was corrupt, in part because of the money we were pouring into the country. That we needed to set objectives that were achievable which did not require 40,000 troops trying to pacify the entire country. As a senator, like many in that room, he'd initially supported the war, as well as the war in Iraq. Unlike them, he'd learned his lesson. He understood that there were limits to what the military should be asked to achieve inside of other countries, and that we had other priorities that would suffer if we escalated the war in Afghanistan. The military was focused on the risk of inaction, Biden was focused on the risks of action. The brass got their way, though Obama did scale back their surge. That year, we committed 30,000 more troops to Afghanistan. Looking back now, Joe Biden was more prescient than the generals. I'm Ben Rhodes, and welcome to the final episode of Missing America. We've spent this series looking at the political diseases sweeping across the world in the absence of American leadership. Nationalism, authoritarianism, xenophobia, disinformation, and climate change. I think we can agree, it's not a pretty picture. Under Trump, democracy itself is slipping away. 
while cooperation on issues like fighting pandemics and climate change has been shattered. And a lot of people are suffering because of it, in America and around the world. But today, we're going to look ahead at how a Biden administration will pick up the pieces of America's shattered credibility. You'll hear my wide-ranging conversation with Jake Sullivan. He was Vice President Joe Biden's top national security aide, and he's presidential candidate Joe Biden's senior policy advisor. With him, we'll paint a picture of an America the world can count on again, an America that starts fixing what's broken at home and engages with the world in a way we can be proud of. Joe Biden would think about using the office of the presidency to achieve something more than just policy, to achieve a kind of greater sense of revitalization in our democracy. One last look at the global crises we face and how to start fixing them, starting Inauguration Day 2021, on this episode of Missing America. This episode of Missing America is brought to you by Karyuma, a sustainable sneaker company that makes crazy comfy high and low tops that are better for you and the planet. I'm going to pull back the curtain here a little bit and say, here in California, I've been looking for something in between those really, really casual vans and those clunky shoes. Now that I have one, I have found it. Karyumas have a classic aesthetic, but they're made with new school ethics too. Take, for instance, their vegan bestseller, EB. It's been called the comfiest shoe on the planet, Boast a 16,000-person wait list, and most importantly, it's carbon neutral. Each pair features their perfect-fit bamboo-knit sugar cane EVA outsoles, plant-based memory foam insoles, and laces made from recycled plastic bottles. Oh, and they're machine washable, slip-onable, and slip-offable. Pro tip, just remove your insoles before you pop them in the wash. We recommend checking out their EB Stone Collection for fall, which includes classic colorways, black and gray, and two newcomers, navy and blush. Karyuma ships free in the USA and offers worldwide shipping and returns. They use single box recycled packaging to deliver their sneakers to your front door. Plus, every time you buy a pair of shoes, Karyuma plants a pair of trees in the Brazilian rainforest. And Crooked listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your first pair of Karyuma sneakers. Go to cariuma.com slash crooked to get 15% off. That's C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash crooked for 15% off today. Missing America is brought to you by Blinkist. Let me tell you about a fast way to get smarter, easier. Blinkist is really unique and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information, from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestseller lists, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read, but never had the time to. I like Blinkist because in very little time, less than 15 minutes, you can get smarter, you can pick up a few nuggets, or you can test drive a book and see if you want to take it out for a longer spin. I use Blinkist when I'm driving, but also when I'm working out, when I'm making breakfast, when I'm going for a run. There are many, many books that you can find on their list. Just to take a few to recommend... Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis by Jared Diamond, one of our most interesting writers. Or, if you're in an election mood, Unchopping America by Dan Pfeiffer, host of Pod Save America. 
With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com missing and try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com missing to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com missing. I first met Jake Sullivan in 2008 in Asheville, North Carolina. The Obama campaign had set up camp there to get Obama prepped for his debate with John McCain. It basically consisted of two rooms, a windowless office where people assembled giant binders full of questions and answers on every possible topic, and a full replica of the stage where Obama tested them out in mock debates. Jake Sullivan was the guy in the room with the binders typing up answers, tweaking them endlessly based on what happened on stage. He never left that office and rarely took his eyes off his laptop for days. That's Jake, a guy who does the work and who has been willing to question his own assumptions. Over the last 12 years, we've become close friends as the world around us changed. But one thing hasn't changed. When I spoke to Jake last month, he was getting ready to prep another presidential candidate, Joe Biden, for his debates. I asked him to try to put into words how different it feels to be waging a presidential campaign now compared to then. Well, there are some kind of interesting similarities in that in 2008, we really believed that we needed to rescue American foreign policy, that we had to rescue our standing in the world and who we were as a country and what we stood for. And that Barack Obama's election was going to herald a new day for the United States on the global stage. I think we didn't quite recognize that things could get even worse. (laughs) It seemed like eight years of George W. Bush was going to be a nadir, and Barack Obama was going to put us inexorably on a different and better path. So there's that aspect. But I think what's most different is just how Donald Trump has made us return to basics in American foreign policy to what are the value of alliances, to what are the core principles upon which our country was built and what we want to represent in the world, to the value of diplomacy as a concept, to the value of democracy as a concept, to, you know, actually explaining to people why it matters that we shouldn't just go around submitting to dictators and trashing our friends. I mean, these are things that just at a really elemental level Donald Trump has made us revisit. And frankly, in a funny way, we I think we've gotten a little lazy. We've just kind of taken them all for granted. Yeah. So for like a couple of years of the Trump administration, we would sort of splutter our way through the absurdity of his approach on alliances or democracy or values or institutions or diplomacy. And it took us a while to sharpen up once again the case that we had to be able to make to the American people about why these things really mattered. And I think we're in a position to win that debate with Donald Trump in the closing weeks of this election. So if you look forward, I mean, one of those basics is democracy. And one of the things we look at on this series is the challenges to democracy around the world. And I'm going to focus on a couple. First, 
you know, really in Europe, um, but it's not limited to Europe, um, that this particular form of nationalism that blends with authoritarianism, you know, that we've seen in Hungary, you see elements of it in the UK, you see it in Poland. And obviously this has rippled out to other countries. What do you do about that trend? If Joe Biden's elected, what does he do to try to reverse some of the sense of momentum in, in global politics away from this kind of authoritarian form of nationalism to kind of a new era of momentum for democracy? Well, I think that there are at least four basic ingredients. They're probably like 11, but four really stand out to me. The first is democracy has to do a better job of materially delivering for people. It has to improve their way of life to a greater extent than it has for the past 40, 50 years, where you've seen wages stagnate, rising income inequality, greater corporate concentration, and just the lived experience of people in the United States and, frankly, in many advanced democratic market economies around the world has not advanced in the way that things have for those at the very top. So that's one really important part of it. A second piece is a little more ineffable, and that has to do with respect and dignity. I think in general, our political leadership, but more broadly, what one might call the elites in Europe and the United States, I think have to take a hard look in the mirror about the extent to which they have not conveyed a sense of deep respect and honor and dignity to folks who feel like they've been cut out or haven't been given a fair shake. And Joe Biden himself is extremely attentive to this. A job's about a lot more than your paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about your place in the community. It's about being able to look your kids in the eye and say, honey, it's gonna be all right. Dignity of work. What you do matters. You matter. This is something that lies at the core of how he's thought about politics for 40 years. So I think he'll be a uniquely capable kind of leader. But younger political leaders who can tell those who might trend towards the authoritarian line, who can tell them, I see you, I respect you, I you know, want to listen to you, that is going to make a big difference. The third piece is to be unapologetic about pluralism. I mean, there is an identitarian, xenophobic, kind of racist undercurrent to some of this that does exist on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think here we have to give no quarter. Showing respect and treating people with dignity, yes, but also aggressively asserting the value and importance of pluralism. And then finally, there's the threat from without. I mean, there is the pressure on our societies from Russia and other countries who want to weaken, divide, and distract us and prey upon our existing divisions and vulnerabilities. And we have to be much more resolute and resilient in pushing it back against those things. So there's a lot else to say, but I think that captures the way Joe Biden would think about using the office of the presidency to achieve something more than just policy, to achieve a kind of greater sense of revitalization in our democracy. And just one follow-up is I noticed this idea that he's put forward of having kind of a summit of democracies. Some of that's just about practically restoring effective alliances, but is some of that about trying to create a sense of the democracies regrouping and, and more unabashedly embracing values in our approach to international relations? 
So the idea the vice president has in proposing this idea of a summit of democracies is that there is both a strong signal value in that, sending a message to the world that we like-minded democracies are pulling together to defend our perspective, our way of life, our institutions, our model, but also we're pulling together to take a hard look at how we can refurbish and rehabilitate it in important ways. And that goes for some of the the broader themes that I've talked about, economic inclusion, pluralism, respect, dignity, and so forth. But it also goes for very tangible issues, like how do we deal with technology? How do we deal with issues related to trade and international economic policy, corporate concentration? How do we deal with the fact that you've got young people who, you know, look at democratic systems and worry that they're just not up to the job of the great challenges of our future, whether it's climate change or racism or what have you. So for him, at the end of the day, it's both a really important statement of principle to the world and a practical forum to solve very real world problems. So one of the issues that obviously might come up there, right, is China. And I wanted to to ask you specifically about you know, less any one geopolitical issue, but more this idea that the Chinese have a model that is gaining traction around the world, a model that they're more aggressively and assertively imposing on places like Hong Kong. This was the moment China tightened its grip on Hong Kong. Under the national security law, many of the acts of protest that have rocked Hong Kong over the past year could now be punished with up to life in prison. In the period of time of a presidency, four years or eight years, you know, what is the most important thing to do to to push back on that? So they say in real estate that the three most important factors are location, location, location. I think when it comes to China, the three most important factors are domestic renewal, domestic renewal, and domestic renewal. How we reinforce our own foundation, invest in our education and infrastructure and innovation and immigration system, how we invest in our democracy and our democratic system, that will be paramount in putting us in a position where we can effectively compete with China from a position of strength. And that is a huge task. And it means at the end of the day that domestic policy is foreign policy for the purpose of the next president of the United States. Now, some other things matter as well, starting with alliances. Frankly, we are going to be able to deal with China much more effectively if we are rallying like-minded democracies that represent well more than half the world's economy with us to challenge China on its abuses, but also to bring China along where we need to be able to work with them on things like climate change or global health and the like. And then on the values point, I think that goes hand in hand with domestic renewal because it's hard for us to make claims for justice abroad if we're not dealing with injustice at home. But it does require a clarion, consistent voice of speaking out on issues like the Uyghurs in Xinjiang or the repression in Hong Kong. And we've seen from the current president exactly the opposite, encouraging Xi Jinping to do as he's doing. And Joe Biden would be the kind of president who would speak out with a very clear voice on those things. In fact, Biden already has. Here he is in May, after China announced sweeping new laws that would give it control over Hong Kong. How would Biden deal with the situation as president? I'd be at the UN with my UN ambassador, and I'd be insisting and calling out what the United States has always done. An overwhelming violation, not only of an agreement, but of human rights. 
Listeners of the show know that's a far cry from Trump's tune when the Hong Kong protests first broke out and America's voice could have made a difference. Well, I'll tell you, look, we have to stand with Hong Kong, but I'm also standing with President Xi. He's a friend of mine. He's an incredible guy. We have to stand, but I'd like to see them work it out, okay? That weak signal to the world was followed by months of inaction by the White House, while the city's protesters were getting tear gassed in the streets. Biden had something to say about that, too. The silence on our part has been devastating for people around the world. All it does is encourage thugs and dictators, which, in fact, I think the president has some kind of affinity for. And yet, if you do a search on YouTube for Joe Biden and Hong Kong protests, what you'll find is video after video and comment after comment spreading outright falsehoods about Biden, portraying him as some sort of pawn of President Xi. Never mind the fact that it's Trump who called China's leader, quote, an incredible guy, live on Fox News, and praised his transparency around the coronavirus after China tried to cover up the lethality of the disease. It's further evidence of something else we've talked about on this series, disinformation. Social media deployed to spread conspiracy theories and to sow division. Like everything else we've talked about on the show, it's a problem that won't just vanish once Joe Biden is president. In fact, with right-wing conspiracy theories like QAnon only ramping up their reach, things could get much worse. I asked Jake what exactly a Biden administration can do about that. I don't have a perfect answer to this question. I think it's one of the most difficult things facing us right now. But I think there are three basic buckets of activity that the next president will have to pursue. The first does go straight to regulation. And frankly, Joe Biden has been quite forward-leaning about his view that social media platforms need to be regulated to a greater extent. He's talked about getting rid of what's called Section 230 of the Communications Act, which provides essentially immunity to the Facebooks of the world for whatever is published on their site and imposes some, if you repealed it, it would impose some responsibility on them to police that. So that's point one. Second has to do with dealing with the larger issue of state-sponsored disinformation. And it's not just Russia. Other countries are in the game, and I think increasingly will be getting into the game uh, as this whole issue of disinformation becomes a national security weapon, a la missiles or cyber or what have you. And so having an effective system of deterrence and imposing costs and making clear to the rest of the world that there will be a real price to pay for systematic efforts to interfere in the American democratic discourse, that's got to be an important part of what the next president does. And then third, this is the more nebulous, but probably of the three most important categories, it's the one I have the least kind of clear shape around. It has to do with finding ways to increasingly educate and you know, make more resilient the American populace to this kind of disinformation, to have them recognize it when it comes, to have them, you know, have access to the kind of uh, real information that can help counter it. Um, And that is really less the work of government and more the work of a, a broader effort in civil society to build up essentially the antibodies within the U.S. body politic against this kind of disinformation. And there's leadership from Washington to continue to encourage that and to model that good behavior 
But at the end of the day, I think that's going to require a much more bottom-up rather than top-down approach and should be something that a lot of young people out there who are kind of saying, what can I do uh, to help defend and advance the values I care about in this country, that they get in the game on this issue because this third bucket is going to be driven from outside Washington, not inside Washington. All right. And along the lines of issues that are nearly impossible to solve, uh, let's uh, turn to the Middle East. And you know, we talked on the show about this transactional mindset that's you know driven our policies there for decades, kind of going to autocratic regimes like Saudi Arabia or Egypt and, and saying, you help us fight terrorists and, and we'll give you weapons. And how that securitized mindset has, you know, also perpetuated what feel like endless wars. What's the basic approach to end that mindset and, and wind down our endless wars? So the thing that's bothered me a lot about the discourse on the Middle East for as long as I can remember is that we basically measure America's commitment to the Middle East by how many soldiers we have there. It's like, if we're drawing down our number of troops, we're abandoning the region. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are responsible for the growth of ISIS because they precipitously withdrew from Iraq in 2011 against the advice of every single general. Barack Obama became president and he abandoned Iraq. He left and that void now exists as a caliphate the size of Indiana. And that is just a crazy way to think about America's engagement with this part of the world. So my basic formula on this is that the United States should be simultaneously more ambitious and less ambitious when it comes to the Middle East. We should be less ambitious about our ability to use military force to produce positive outcomes. Because the fact is, we're really bad at that. And we should take that lesson and basically stop trying to use military action to produce stability across the Middle East. So we should get way less ambitious on that. But I think we should get much more ambitious about what we can possibly achieve through muscular diplomacy. And that includes, honestly, helping reduce and de-escalate the major conflicts in the region that are producing so much of the chaos, humanitarian ca catastrophe, and yes, extremism, violent extremism and terrorism. So we should be pushing on Iran and Saudi Arabia to de-escalate. We should be working to try to carry forward an overall reduction in the tensions among the major state players, Turkey, Syria, Iran, etc. And in some of those cases, from my perspective, we should be, frankly, working with outside actors as well, our, our partners in Europe, but you know, Russia obviously has a voice in this too. And we should be aggressively trying to design diplomatic tables at which we put as many of these countries as possible to try to find progress towards a reduction in overall violence. And to do that, it's going to require, on the one hand, giving some reassurance to traditional partners in the region that we're not just like up and leaving altogether, but some really tough love, particularly to uh, some of our autocratic partners of decades past, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, others, to say, look, we're not going to look the other way when you mistreat your people. And we're not going to give you a green light to act in destabilizing and, and aggressive and negative ways that contribute to instability in the region. We're going to expect you to step up. And I think we have the wherewithal to make meaningful progress on that. You know, everyone's very cynical about the Middle East at this point. Everyone. And, and so am I. Like, I'm not 
predicting we can just produce peace in the Middle East overnight. I mean, peace in the Middle East as a phrase is almost kind of laughable concept. But do I think that we can get on an, in a direction of de-escalation as opposed to escalation? Yeah, I do. And I think we should not be shy about stepping up to try to do that. And that means reducing our overall military footprint, but increasing our overall diplomatic effort in the region. And I would love to see that as a formula that the Biden administration pursues in the years ahead if, if he's fortunate enough to be elected. That's easier said than done. But I know that Joe Biden is skeptical of what can be achieved with our military. He opposed that Afghan surge in 2009, just as he opposed the intervention in Libya in 2011. And he can also pick up the work of diplomatic efforts, like the Iran nuclear deal, an agreement that Jake helped to negotiate. After the break, we've got more from Jake Sullivan, laying out the Biden campaign's plans for everything from tackling the migration crisis our wars helped to cause, to literally saving the planet. You know, when people say, what are the foreign policy priorities of, should be the foreign policy priorities of the next administration, climate's got to be right at the top of that list, uh, given what an existential threat it is. That and my final message to you as we prepare ourselves for the election, when Missing America continues. Stay with us. Missing America is brought to you by Babbel. This entire series has been about Americans needing to better engage the world. And what better way to do that than to learn a new language? It's something that should always be on our to-do list. And Babbel is proven to get you speaking a language within weeks. Babbel designs their courses with real-world conversation in mind, letting you learn everyday practical conversations that you'll actually use. The daily lessons are 10 to 15 minutes and start by teaching you words and phrases. Then, sentences gradually get more complex. Soon, you're practicing short conversations. The lessons are thoughtfully created by over 100 language experts, and their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective across multiple studies, and we are all about science on Missing America. They even have speech recognition technology that helps improve your pronunciation and accent. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. And Babbel is available as an app, or online, so your progress will be synced across all your devices. Right now, when you purchase a three-month subscription, Babbel will give our listeners three additional months for free with promo code MISSING. That's three additional months free if you go to babbel.com and use promo code MISSING on your three-month subscription. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, promo code MISSING. Missing America is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. This is not an easy time to own a business. You've got to think about COVID, social distancing at work, having a clean and sanitary workplace. That's important. You've got to worry about an economic crisis. And you've got to worry about making sure you have the right people. Monica Starks could relate to that. She needed to hire for a pivotal role at her construction company, GS Group, but was having a tough time finding the right person, especially with so many candidates out there. So she switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com missing. That's how Monica found Lamont Jenkins. She said that ZipRecruiter sent Lamont's profile to her around five minutes after she posted her job because he was such a great match for the role. 
Through ZipRecruiter, Monica's company has hired everyone from accountants to project managers to field scientists. But Monica's not the only employer who loves ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself how ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. Try it now for free, that's right, free, at ZipRecruiter.com slash missing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-I-S-S-I-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash missing. Missing America is brought to you by Who We Are, a chronicle of racism in America. Who We Are, a chronicle of racism in America is a new podcast by Ben and Jerry's and produced by Vox Creative that unpacks the parts of our history that you might not have learned about in school. Hosted by Peabody nominee Carvel Wallace and based on ACLU Deputy Legal Director Jeffrey Robinson's acclaimed work, Who We Are breaks down the origins and impact of white supremacy on our elections, healthcare, economy, and so much more. This could not be more relevant. It's a podcast that will give you a better understanding of our present moment and perhaps help us all shape a more equitable future. Who We Are, a chronicle of racism in America, is out now. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. In the first episode of this series, we learned how America's strength in the world comes, in large part, from our reputation as a home for people from all over. After all, there's a big statue out in New York Harbor celebrating our promise to the world of a safe haven for the masses. That mindset has enriched our nation and given us a unique claim to moral leadership in the world. The bad news? In less than four years, Donald Trump has signed more than 400 executive actions designed to turn away immigrants and refugees, ripping perhaps our greatest international calling card to shreds. The good news, a President Biden could quickly overturn Trump's executive actions with a bunch of his own, starting with reversing Trump's offensive Muslim ban. If I have the honor of being president, I will end the Muslim ban on day one. But as we've also learned, welcoming refugees is a step that can come with political consequences. Something Jake Sullivan's well aware of. Look, this is such a hard issue because we saw in Europe that, you know, genuinely generous refugee policies produce these massive political backlashes. And the lesson that European leaders have taken is to be way more reluctant to accept more refugees. But frankly, this begins with the United States stepping up to play its historic role as the world's leader in refugee admissions and then in helping organize a more effective global response. The number of refugees accepted in the Trump administration has fallen to near zero. And uh, Joe Biden has actually, on World Refugee Day a few weeks ago, put out a really bold statement where not only did he talk about raising the target to 125,000 per year, which 
is over and above what was done in the Obama administration. But he also said, I want to be accountable for at least a floor, too. I'm not just talking about the ceiling. I'm saying that the United States has a certain obligation to meet a threshold on this. A minimum emission of 95,000 refugees. That's who we are. That's how my great-grandfather got here. He got in a coffin ship on the Irish Sea, never knowing whether he was going to make it. And he made it to the United States of America in 1848. And I think that kind of spirit can be infectious because it can create the momentum for the United States then to rally the rest of the world to do two things. One, to have more countries with means step up and increase their willingness to take in refugees. But then two and maybe more importantly, to get the world to overhaul a refugee law or set of conventions that really haven't changed in many decades when the nature of migration has changed dramatically. So, for example, the current Global Refugee Convention doesn't really contemplate climate migrants, yet that's going to be an increasing pressure on the system in the years ahead. And the U.S. should be sitting with the other major countries of the world and saying, what's it going to take to set new rules on this so that we've set in place the ability to absorb what is going to be possibly upwards of 140 million refugees just over the course of the next 20 years alone, mostly from climate, but you know, also from conflict and, and other things as well. And here, honestly, I think having a little bit of backbone Having been through this on the political side, where when you look at the polling data, it looks bad at various points, like people are nervous about taking refugees from Syria. But if you push on the argument with them, one more step, a lot of folks come around. And so some of this just requires some political courage on the part of political leaders to break through initial resistance. And, you know, Joe Biden has been fearless about that. And I think his leadership on this can help produce... Uh, similar kinds of fearlessness in leaders in other countries as well. So you mentioned climate, and I obviously want to talk about that. Um, you know, it's interesting, even in the Obama administration, where climate change was front burner, and we expended tons of political capital to get to an ambitious Paris Climate Accords, to get that negotiated and signed, it was still hard to embed climate in, in all of our domestic and foreign policy decisions across the board. Because that, that's really a sea change. What does that look like in a Biden administration? So uh, Joe Biden's actually laid out a remarkably detailed international climate plan based on the simple proposition that the United States is 15% of global emissions, which means that if we want to solve this problem, we got to rally the other 85% of the world to do it. That basic fact is reflected in this extensive document that he's laid out on this. But I just touch on four basic highlights of it. The first is to recognize that rejoining Paris on day one is an absolute must, but not enough. We are also going to call the countries of the world together to elevate their ambitions under Paris, to increase their commitments to mitigate carbon in their own countries. The U.S. will commit to do it, and the U.S. will rally the rest of the world to do it, including our close allies and including the world's largest emitting country, China. Second thing is the vice president has said, let's work towards a worldwide ban on fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, there's just no more excuse for subsidizing fossil fuel, either here or around the world. 
And, you know, there was a, a study actually by the International Monetary Fund that showed if you didn't have these subsidies, you could have reduced global carbon emissions by nearly 30% to date. Then the third big piece of this is to get dramatic breakthroughs on the technology side. You know, the Obama-Biden administration launched something called Mission Innovation, which was uh, 20 countries coming together around research, development, and deployment of, of breakthrough technologies. And Joe Biden wants to take this to a dramatically greater scale. We're going to make a major investment to build 1.5 million new energy-efficient homes. And we're going to convert these government fleets to electric vehicles. That's why we're going to achieve a carbon pollution-free electric sector by the year 2035. And then finally, there's the issue of how climate fits into trade and development. You know, China's out there through the Belt Road Initiative basically exporting its carbon pollution. The vice president is going to work aggressively to establish development standards globally that build both climate carbon mitigation and allow for these developing countries to be able to adapt to the ravages of climate change, which they're going to face faster and greater than, than the rest of the world. And on the trade side, it's to recognize you can't have trade deals going forward that don't build climate considerations into their core. And the vice president will be very much focused on doing that, not just in what the U.S. does, but in trade rules that apply more broadly around the world. A lot more to say on this topic, but you know, as you may be able to tell from me wonking out on this a bit, it's something that he cares passionately about and that, that I am deeply passionate about as well. And to your point, it needs to come. This, you know, when people say, what are the foreign policy priorities of, should be the foreign policy priorities of the next administration? Climate's got to be right at the top of that list, uh, given what an existential threat it is. There is so much wrong with our world today. But as we've learned on this show, there are also so many good ideas that good people are passionate about for mitigating climate change and for pursuing a world that is more just, more equal, and more responsive to the problems in people's lives. When I think back on my time in the Obama administration, there's a lot that I'm proud of. And there are a lot of things I wished we could have done differently. The same will surely be true of a Biden administration. I told Jake that two things stood out for me when I look back. First, that we could have done more to listen to the voices, not just of governments, but of people around the world. Progressive leaders and activists, like the ones you've met on this show. And second, that we could have been more attuned to the profound connection between what was happening at home and what was happening around the world. The idea that there really is no dividing line between domestic and foreign policy, or between domestic politics and the politics of other countries, and how movements like Black Lives Matter give us an opportunity to address problems not just at home, but around the world. Look, I have to acknowledge that, frankly, the election of 2016 and its consequences have really opened my eyes in a lot of profound ways. But maybe one of the most fundamental is the recognition that we saw foreign policy through far too narrow a lens. Uh, and by we, I don't mean everybody. I, I, I do mean me and yeah, yeah, some yeah. others. Yeah, you can throw me in there. But basically, when we sat around the Situation Room table, we weren't thinking about the 
distributive justice of, you know, who's benefiting from these policies we're pursuing. We weren't thinking about how movements in our own country needed to be responded to, but maybe even more importantly, could be harnessed in service of building a better world. It just was a blind spot of sorts. And, and I actually feel like the four years of Trump have created a circumstance in which those of us who seek to continue to play a role in American foreign policy going forward have had the chance to build relationships, learn things, be exposed to arguments and perspectives that we hadn't been before. So I'm excited about the possibility that the whole conversation and who's in it when it comes to the big ticket items of China or climate or global public health or nuclear weapons or what have you will involve not just your traditional voices and your traditional mechanisms, but can harness all of this energy in a much more positive way. So I think it's a sea change. And you and I have talked to lots of our, our colleagues and, you know, people we served with in the Obama administration. I think this is kind of an almost across the board feeling of folks. And, and that's pretty exciting. Look, Joe Biden isn't going to solve all our problems. He's not a perfect candidate. He won't be a perfect president. Barack Obama was a once-in-a-generation political talent, and he couldn't do that. But I want to leave you with two thoughts. First, everything is on the line in this election. Our democracy will not survive four more years of this. And if we, as a country can live through the Trump presidency and decide to validate his performance through re-election? Well, the world will draw their own conclusions about how screwed up America is. And they'll be right. But the simple truth is that more Americans oppose Donald Trump than support him. So if we do the work of organizing, of making a plan to vote, and trying to persuade that family, friend, or neighbor who's on the fence, then we can and will win this election. And it's not just a vote against Trump. Joe Biden is a smart, decent, experienced guy. Someone who is in it for the right reasons and will hire a lot of the right people. As you just heard, people who are thinking seriously about what's going on. Even if Biden is not everything you want, and you almost never get that in politics, he is about a million times better than the other guy. So vote. Second, the work doesn't end after the election. If there is one lesson that I hope you take away from this series, it's that governments alone cannot solve our problems. It takes engaged citizens to hold them accountable and keep them focused. It takes activists and civil society to generate new ideas. And it takes mass mobilization, movements that are sustained, connected across borders, and determined to win more than one election. We can do this, people. The wrong leaders are on top in too many places, but we can make sure that they won't be the ones who determine the future. We can do that. That's what America was supposed to be all about, what we're supposed to represent to the world. Donald Trump does not define America. We do. We are many, and we are not alone in this world.
Missing America is written and hosted by me, Ben Rhodes. It's a production of Crooked Media. The show is produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Rico Galliano is our story editor. Austin Fisher is our associate producer. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Ramirez. Production support and research from Nimi Uberoi and Sydney Rapp. Fact-checking by Justin Klosko. Original music by Marty Fowler. The executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Tanya Sominator. Special thanks to Allison Falzetta, Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, and John Pfeffer. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best – 